Welcome, everyone, to episode 54 of Some Like It's Got, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we're going to be reviewing the first spinoff of the Fast and Furious franchise that is Fast and Furious Presents, Hobbs and Shaw. But before we get to that, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm good, Scott. I uh, am back here in the great volunteer state, uh, back home for a few days, Uh after finishing up my summer in Raleigh. Uh, and yeah, I'm excited to be here, visit my family for a few days uh, and just chill before I uh, head back for year three. So two quick follow questions there. One, what was the uh, final uh, take from your summer in Raleigh? Did you enjoy it? And two, are you excited about your last year of law school or are you nervous more than excited? Yeah, I mean, it was a uh, it was a good summer. I enjoyed the work that I did and Raleigh in the whole triangle area up there seems like a really cool area um, to live. Uh, the downside would be that I just didn't know a lot of people in the area. So um, my weekends and stuff weren't too eventful, as I have mentioned on the show before. But um, yeah, it was it was a solid summer as far as looking ahead. I'm I mean, I'm excited to get back to school and see my friends and everything. I guess I'm anxious about uh the prospect of this being my last year and you know all of the uh the baggage that comes with that and and everything that i'm gonna have to deal with after graduating uh next year but you know i got a little ways to go before i get there so well scott time is up on the fast and and on the lead into fast and furious presents hobbs and Shaw because that did come out this weekend and although neither of us are completely up to date on the fast and furious franchise it's not one that either of us have followed entry by entry we will be diving deep today on that latest entry into the universe into the form uh, in the form of Dwayne Johnson of the Dwayne Johnson Jason Statham led Hobbs and Shaw directed by David Leitch the action comedy spinoff follows the titular Luke Hobbs and Deckard Shaw played by Johnson and Statham respectively in a globe-trotting race to save the latter's MI6 operative sister Hattie Shaw played by Vanessa Kirby after she is forced into injecting herself with a programmable virus when Idris Elba's Brixton lore sabotages her MI6 team's operation to intercept said virus. With 72 hours before the virus becomes active in her system, the at-odds Hobbs and Shaw must race across Europe and eventually the oceanic nation-state of Samoa to save Hattie's life while keeping Brixton and the mysterious Etion Corporation at bay. Yes, they do all of that in 72 hours somehow. Scott, I will leave it there and simply ask, is Hobbs and Shaw the Mission Impossible fallout of 2019, or is it the Rampage or the Skyscraper of 2019? Well, I certainly can't testify to Rampage or Skyscraper, having not seen either of those films. But what I will say about Hobbs and Shaw is that if you are a fan of movies that are largely comprised of action sequences that are branched by scenes of characters saying, I just want you to know if this goes south, then this movie is for you Um, because that's essentially the structure of the movie. There's not really uh, so much a plot as there is an excuse to string together some of these uh, spectacular action sequences that the Fast and Furious franchise are 
known for. You know, you mentioned Mission Impossible Fallout in that in that lead in, and I think that you know that that those franchises have been compared often in terms of uh, you know th- these are original action franchises, uh, and you know that that consistently do big numbers at the box office. They're two of the only blockbuster action franchises that we have that are based on original stories, um, and so. I think that they get compared for those reasons, but I still think that the Mission Impossible series uh, definitely blows Fast and the Furious. And to be honest, most other action franchises out of the water. Um, I have enjoyed some of the movies in the Fast and Furious franchise. Fast Five and Furious Seven uh, are two standouts for me. I think when they got away from the the racing, more racing focused movies and into the more heist themed, big action, uh, you know, movies got people like Justin Lin and uh, James Wan directing. I think uh, those got those movies got me a little bit more on board. Uh, but I have to say Hobbs and Shaw is not one of the better entries in the Fast and Furious franchise, at least of the ones that I've seen. It's it's a it's a thoroughly average movie, I would say, if I had to describe it. You know, when I walked out of the theater, I kind of just felt nothing. I didn't feel like, oh, I enjoyed that. I didn't feel like, oh, I really disliked that or really hated it. It was just sort of a time filler for two hours and 15 minutes, which, yes, is far too long for this movie. Um, you know, we got to what I thought was a uh, somewhat of an ending point, And then you find out that there's still an entire, you know, another chapter of the movie uh, to go. And, and while the, the last chapter of the movie, so to speak, is, you know, probably an improvement, it is one of the better parts of the movie. I was a little exhausted by the time we got there because because the whole movie is comprised of those action sequences, right? And it's just an assault on the senses most of the time. Um, and so, yeah, you, you know, it wears you down, even if it's just, you know, an hour, been an hour and 40 minutes, it feels like a, you know, <laughs> you have to exert more in this hour and 40 minutes than you would uh, in a different type of movie. And, and more than that, I think that this movie just doesn't feature the sort of creativity and originality in its action sequences and its set pieces there, you know, there are a few inspired moments, uh, most of which were actually in the trailer, to be quite honest. But I think it doesn't hold a candle to Mission Impossible in that area uh, either. I think there, you, I can only watch so many scenes of car chases and people punching each other uh, before it just becomes redundant and boring. And I'm like, okay, I'm just ready for this scene to be over. And I think uh, Hobbs and Shaw kind of fails in that area uh, because... Again, the fight sequences are largely just people punching each other. By the time they sort of did something creative, again, in that final chapter, uh, it was kind of too late for the movie. Um, as far as the characters go, you know, these are both likable actors in talking of Jason Statham and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Uh, but I just don't think these characters work super well together. I think that the the tension, the faux tension that is, you know, hyped up between these characters in the first part of the movie is... Um, you know, this animosity that they have for each other doesn't really seem to make any sense. There doesn't seem to be a lot of reason why or explanation uh, provided as to why these characters don't like each other. I mean, obviously, we know these characters have a little bit of history from the Fast and Furious franchise in the past. But, you know, when this movie starts out, the position that both of them are in, it doesn't seem like uh, they should you know, be reacting with such animosity to each other. It just feels like a way to, you know, sort of stall for time until we, of course, we inevitably know that these guys are going to become, you know, a lethal weapon style buddy team. Um, And of course that does happen. 
I think far more interesting in terms of the characters is the the new character who's introduced here, uh, Hattie Shaw, played by Vanessa Kirby, the sister of Deckard Shaw. Uh, I think what we've learned from the Fast and Furious franchise is that when they've run, seemingly run out of ideas, their their strategy is just introduce a new member into the Shaw family because uh, that's what they did when they introduced Jason Statham for the first time, introducing him as Owen Shaw's brother, and you know then we got Helen Mirren's character, the, their mother introduced in in the Fate of the Furious. And now we have their sister. So I only wonder how much larger this family gets. Um, but I, I, th- I guess however much, however larger it gets, that's also the, the amount of time that the Fast and Furious franchise has left uh, to exist because that seems to be their way of extending things. Uh, but I thought Vanessa Kirby did a, a really solid job as she did in Mission Impossible, right? You know, you're either a Mission Impossible person or a Fast and the Furious person unless you're Vanessa Kirby because then you can do both. Uh, and I think she is really solid in both. She's she's given much more to do here than she was in Mission Impossible Fallout, and I appreciated that. I think she definitely holds her own um, against Dwayne the Rock Johnson and uh, and Jason Statham, and I think just provides something different in a franchise that uh, where the the female characters haven't always cut the the strongest presence. Certainly, you know the the Fast and the Furious franchise hasn't had someone like an Ilsa Faust, for example, from the, uh, the uh, Mission Impossible movies. Uh, but I think she comes close to that here uh, with her performance. And, you know, if anything, I think that the, it proves promising for the future of this franchise uh, because it does seem like they're going to keep this character um, along for whatever is to come next for the, the ninth movie uh, in the Fast and Furious series to come next year. Uh, so yeah, overall, kind of a mixed bag. It has its moments, um, but you know, I, I think you can do much better than this as far as movies that are out right now. As far as action movies that are out right now, um, I don't think it comes close to a John Wick or Mission Impossible, uh, and it doesn't come close to even the best entries in the Fast and Furious franchise. So ultimately, I was a little bit disappointed because I did think the trailers looked like they were going to be a lot of fun, uh, and I think maybe with a little bit more editing, uh, this movie could have been more fun, but uh, it was just kind of a uh, dead weight for me in the end. I think for this movie, I'm mostly in agreement with you. I found the two hour and 15 minute runtime to be wearisome, <laughs> to say the least. And I think that that's just largely because the, this movie doesn't really try to do anything new. Yes, you talked about the, the you know, the last part of the movie becomes different dynamic of family drama. I mean, of course, this franchise has always been about family. This movie is no different. I mean, you have the family in terms of the relationship between Deckard and Hattie in the first, like the first two thirds of the movie in the last third, you still have that. But you also have Dwayne Johnson's family come to the forefront, which isn't a spoiler because they showed everything that was happening in this movie in the trailer, uh, which I mean, no one probably went to this movie to to see the plot and to understand the story. But nevertheless, we knew everything that was pretty much everything that was going to happen uh, from the outset. And that being so that being said, it's like hard to even talk about the plot other than the fact that I found it boring and honestly just bad. Like the, the it didn't make any sense. And I know that you have to suspend your disbelief, right? But some of the carelessness with which the plot was constructed and which details were thrown around and then in my opinion disregarded felt egregious even for movies where you have to suspend your disbelief within reason. And the things that are I should maybe the main primary saving grace of this movie is that there is chemistry that exists between some of these actors. I don't think it always fires on all cylinders, but I think Vanessa Kirby is adds some much needed life into this movie where 
especially in like the first half of the movie where it just felt like they were hamming the relationship between Hobbs and Shaw in a way that was unrealistic. And, you know, you're right. Maybe it's because we haven't, you know, haven't been as up to date on the Fast and Furious franchise and maybe haven't lived in that series as much as some more dedicated fans. But to me, I don't like, is is this really what their relationship was like? Did, did people know this is what this, the extent that this was their relationship coming into this movie? Is that, well, it definitely wasn't well explained insularly within the movie. And And what I'll say is I think, Maybe, you know, it was kind of a response to a lot of fans of the franchise were upset about the fact that Jason Statham's character was going to kind of be treated as a hero mm. Um, mm. Because, or a protagonist because of the fact that he killed Han, who is one of the uh, other members of the team or who was one of the other members of the team in, in Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift and, and um, you know, was was a fan favorite character. Uh, and so I feel like they kind of introduced this element into the movie just to say, hey, fans, you know, we hear you. We're not going to, you know, act like everything is completely okay from the beginning. But again, it just felt like a complete pretense because we knew where this movie was going from the trailers. It's called Hobbs and Shaw, right? I, I think it's okay to set it up like that, but this was the wrong outlet to do it. Yeah, I, I think that that's probably right because honestly, because these because these characters like, and these, or I should say these actors, all three of them, you know, Johnson, Statham and Kirby all have, considerable chemistry when you actually get to you know the final act of the movie and they finally just drop all all the bs but it's when i was talking about weary about the plot being wearisome it's this it's like this particular arc of their back and forth quote-unquote banter which is it to me i just found it really tiresome and yes action like that should be broken up with action sequences that um were fairly entertaining but to your point even that, you know, the action sequences at some point got a little bit repetitive, like, OK, you drive around, you know, this Russian nuclear what looks like a nuclear facility. Then you go drive around in Samoa and then you but before that you went and drove around in London. It, it just gets all a little bit uh, repetitive. And there was a car chase scene or maybe there is even two car chase scenes in Mission Impossible Fallout last year, but it didn't repl- didn't, didn't rely so heavily on two people driving, trying to uh, catch each other. You know, in some movies that it, those action sequences can break up the monotony of of the plot so to speak especially if the plot is a device to get to the next action sequence which i think it is fair to say that this is the case in hobbs and shaw but then when your action sequences felt like the same but in a different you know in in a different in a different setting you're probably not quite doing your film all the justice that it deserves and i think that's ultimately how i felt about this movie this movie had probably more potential than it lived up to but even that, um, there is probably a limit to how good this movie could have been given uh, all the different components to it, unfortunately. But, on, you know, on that note, why don't we jump into, you know, those titular characters? We've already been talking about them. So let's just dive a little bit deeper. That's Hobbs and Shaw, Dwayne Johnson, Jason Statham. They both have appeared, of course, in the Fast and Furious franchise before. Do you think this movie, you know, allowed them to show that they are two characters worth spinning off from the franchise? Or do you hope the next spinoff? goes a different direction i mean look let's be pretty honest here like these guys kind of only have one note and particular jason in particularly jason statham i think he does you know you're not going to get a lot of layers to a jason statham performance you're not going to watch you're not going to see jason statham doing wildly different roles in movies he kind of does the you know he does the cockney tough guy shtick in every movie but he does it well right that's why he's been able to have uh you know such a successful career in you know big franchises like this um, and, you know, even anchoring some franchises on his own, like the Transporter franchise, for example. And so he does that shtick and he does it here. And, you know, it's fine. Again, you're not going to see anything new, but 
there's a reason he's had success because he's solid at doing it. Um, and I think the same goes for Dwayne The Rock Johnson. You know, he's obviously a, the big imposing guy, but he also has a great movie star charisma that I think he's really cultivated over the years. You know, I, I, there's a lot of professional wrestlers who have gone into the acting world with no little to no success. But I think Dwayne Johnson has that success, has had such success because he just does have that natural charisma. And, you know, you see it every time he's on screen. And I do think they in terms of setting these characters up, they play the dynamic well of, you know, based on who the actors are, like of Jason Statham, you know, he's the more tough, hard-nosed guy who isn't around to make friends with anyone, whereas Dwayne Johnson's Hobbs, you know, is the guy who's telling the lady on the plane, you know, nice babushka, and he's, you know, he can make friends with everyone. He gets out of the TSA bind just by uh, being nice to them, at least according to him. Uh, and so I think that's, that's the right way to set up the characters because it plays to both actors strengths. Um, you know, and as far as their dynamic together, like I said, I think a lot of the first part of it feels forced where, you know, they're setting up sort of artificial tension between these characters, uh, for the most part. Uh, but you know, by the time they reconcile and they, you know, it becomes the buddy movie that, uh, we, we know and expect it to be, uh, I think they have good chemistry. I, I mean, I don't. I wouldn't put it up there with some of the great buddy cop uh, movies, you know, like Lethal Weapon, for example. Um, but you know, I, I think again, you know what you're going to get with these guys, and they make a you know a pretty good pairing. Otherwise, you know, they wouldn't have even thought of doing this spinoff. Um, so you know, I, I can't fault them too much for uh, you know doing what they're known for doing and and you know doing what they do well i think the movie plays to their strengths and we see why yeah i think it's telling that you know for for these two actors kind of on this point that i believe the opening weekend for this one it's tracking pretty well uh i'm forgetting the actual number right now but i think it's like maybe 60 to 80 million i can't remember but it's i think it's actually technically the largest opening for either of these guys you know besides other fast and furious movies and that's because this movie sets them up to be the most Jason Statham and the most Dwayne Johnson that they can be in movie form, to your point. And that that is resonating with people. For me, you talk about that this is maybe will never live up to the, you know, the greatest buddy, you know, action, you know, buddy cop, buddy action comedy movies. And I agree. I think that the disappointing part is that you get a glimpse in the last third of the movie that I actually think that like they could be one of the be- you know one of the better buddy duos out there if the writing and the directing just kind of lets the annoying stuff go right like it, if you just get rid of the shtick from the first half of the movie and let these actors like just play off each other just have fun have the quips that that they still have in the last third of the movie you know have that dynamic that's not annoying and that people I mean, clearly got into because it sounds like you thought the last you know third of the movie was better than the first two thirds, if not but just except for the fact that you were already tired of it. And I felt the same way. And so I think that the only point of disagreement that I might have is that I think there is potential for these two to, you know, to be one of the, you know, one of the better duos out there. And I think that the problem is this movie just couldn't get out of their way. And, which is unfortunate. And I, and I don't know, maybe they had some part to do with that too. Cause I know that, you know, both of these guys, you know, are exact or either executive producers or producers on the movie. And so they have to have been on board with the direction these characters were getting. And, and, you know, to some extent, maybe you need to have some element of that to maintain the continuity of the relationship from the you know main fast and furious franchise, but they're already kind of, you know, recasting, 
and retconning, you know, the franchise sentiment around Deckard Shaw's character as from a villain to a hero. And so it seems like they don't really care too much about following continuity. So it, I wish that this might've been one of those things that he just kind of let bygones be bygones at some point in the movie and just let it play out, you know? And, and I, and I think I had a lot more fun once the barbs went from every other, you know, every other line to, you know, every once in a while. Right. And I, I think that was much more palatable tone as for the actual performances themselves. I'm in the same boat as you. So I don't think I want to harp on it too long, but it works really well. And I just wish that the narrative of these, you know, these two characters arcs, and at least the arc of their relationship just got out of the way a little bit and let, and let the movie flow. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I think maybe this is something I'll bring up more when we talk about the plot or talk about Vanessa Kirby, yeah. but in particular, I think the, the sort of through line here about uh, the relationship between Deckard Shaw and his sister felt really weird and forced to me, uh, sort of the backstory involved there. All right. Yeah, Scott. So, I mean, you mentioned you might bring it up more when you start talking about Vanessa Kirby. So why don't we just go that direction right now? Let's talk about Vanessa Kirby's Hattie Shaw, Deckard Shaw's sister. You said that just now that you thought the relationship and that thread of the of the narrative between her and Jason Statham's character felt a little bit weird. So why don't you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, not so much like the chemistry between the two of them. I think they play off each other pretty well. Like, I definitely believe that these two people were siblings, uh, like 100 percent. Uh, But I think, like, again, it goes back to the whole they're trying to make Deckard Shaw into a hero thing. And so there's this whole backstory, I guess, spoilers, uh, you know, as much as there are spoilers um, with this plot. Um, But, you know, we we learn basically that that there's been a rift between the two of them uh, because uh, Hattie believes that Deckard Shaw killed his his MI-16. But then, of course, we learn later in the movie that he was, in fact, set up. Uh, much, much like she was set up, um, you know, as having, you know, killed her uh, team and, and stolen the virus. When, of course, we know that uh, Idris Elba was the one who, who killed her team. But um, I, I ju- it just felt weird to me, again, because it felt like they're trying to turn Deckard Shaw into a hero. They're trying to, like, you know, gloss away his uh, checkered past. Whereas I feel like, look, you're not getting rid of the fact, you're not retconning the fact that he killed Han. Okay, maybe he didn't kill his whole MI6 team, but we still know that this guy is a bad guy. I think it would just have worked better uh, if uh, they they just, you know, owned up to it and said, look, this guy, you know, he was bad, but now he's, he's reconciled. Uh, just play into that more instead of trying to be like, oh, well, maybe he wasn't actually bad this whole time because we know he was bad. He killed Han. And so I think... The way that that plays into the relationship between him and his sister just felt really forced. Again, like they had to set up a reason why, you know, we're in the ninth movie now. We haven't seen the Shaw's sister before. Like it just felt like, okay, we have to come up with some reason why, uh, you know, they've been separated, why there's a rift between the two of them. We haven't seen this character and it didn't work for me. But that's aside from the performances, because I think Vanessa Kirby is very good and she is the standout in this cast for me. Um, like I said, definitely holds her own despite not having the physique of these other two guys. Um, she's tough and, uh, you know, she talks tough just like them. She's, you know, intimidating uh, on in her own way. Uh, and I really just wanted to see more of this character. I, I like the relationship that sort of blossoms between her and Dwayne Johnson, although I think there's not quite enough of uh, a payoff on that, um, which is something I guess I'll mention uh, also later. But 
yeah, I think I think she fits right in. Uh, and it's nice to see, you know, a, again, a female uh, and especially one with the talent of Vanessa Kirby uh, who gets to, you know, participate more in the in the butt kicking uh, when, you know, generally this franchise has been about the macho energy, been about the Vin Diesel's and Tyrese's and Paul Walker's and Ludacris's and all those guys. Uh, so I like what she brought to the table. Yeah, I think Vanessa Kirby is probably the highlight of this film. If if, if we were to pick one person who I said, you know what, this is the person who made the most difference in a positive way for the movie. It's probably her for me because I think she, I, you know, I we talked last year on the podcast about how we both really liked her in Mission Impossible. You already alluded to it earlier uh, um, in this podcast. And I think that that's spot on. And I'm so happy to see her in an action movie role where she has more to do because you know she absolutely isn't just the doesn't have to just be the person who's you know cutting deals and and a bit of a a shady deal maker like she was in fault last year you know she can hang tough and and fight tough with with the you know with the baddest of them with uh you know even down to the the very end there and i think that i hope that this means that she's gonna get maybe maybe she'll lead an action movie in the near future uh, I just like Vanessa Kirby a lot. I, you know, I loved her when I first saw her in The Crown. And then the more I see her, uh, the more excited I get around seeing her in a new movie. And she does this role really well. And especially, you know, talking about The Crown, this role is so different than that. Because, of course, that being a dramatic period piece, this being an action comedy, uh, a little bit different, uh, some would say. But I, I hear what you're saying around, you know, they had to plot some way to understand why we hadn't heard about this character before this spinoff. For me, it's not even the most egregious of, you know, the the hand waving plot details that we see in this movie. And so that barely even registered for me, uh, at least not any more so than anything like somehow they flew literally halfway across the world and did all these things in 72 hours. They, you know, didn't have to figure out how Brixton also got from London to Russia before they did. Like it was all just incredible. Uh, the amount of hand waviness of the plot to the point where I can do it a few times and not really have much of a problem with it. I mean, I, I watch superhero movies and I don't complain about the plot too often uh, in those, at least not in, in any egregious sense. But this one just felt like every time we had a scene change, we had something something other ridiculous thing happened uh, that you had to force yourself to just move past. And, you know, I can only do it so many times before it starts to wear on me a little bit. That being said, just to go back to, you know, Venice Kirby, I again, she's a, she's a standout performer for me in this movie. I, I liked her relationship as well with Dwayne Johnson and, we have, you know, you know, full spoilers, I guess, here for the for the subplot, uh, you know, again, the, the coy brief kiss on the night before, you know, they're all going to die is about as uh, on par for this movie in terms of pay, payoffs, probably. Yeah. And, that, and that's since you brought it up, what I'll say is that I wanted more of a payoff on that because, you know, they have the scene together and they're talking about how, oh, you know, if we see the sunset tomorrow, like. Uh, you know, we, yeah. maybe we'll kiss again or something. And so I'm like, oh, cool. This is what this can be the end of the movie. That's actually going to be really good. And then they just never come back to it. Yeah. And just to follow up on another point about these characters, though, you talk about how about how this movie constructs a path for Decker Chaw to be a hero. But then at the end of the movie, they're both there giving Helen Mirren's character a C4. They're break breaking her out of jail. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, who are these people? It doesn't make any sense. None of these characters are consistent. It's, it's it. about family. It's about family. It doesn't matter if you're... There's no good and bad. There's just family. Uh, so character arcs and plot mean nothing, and that's okay. But when you make me have to disregard things that are happening a certain number of times, and I, I don't know what that number is. I'd have to sit down and think about how many times it is, but it's a feeling, and I felt it in this one. 
yeah, no, that's fair. And I do think it's a valid point also. The the time, you really have to suspend your disbelief about travel times because, you know, we, we set up a whole ticking clock element with Vanessa Kirby having the virus inside of her. And so I think for, for that reason, it becomes necessary to really stretch credulity in terms of how quickly they can jump from London to Russia to then Samoa by the end of the movie. I mean, Idris Elba is like, all right, we're going to Samoa. And then like is there a few hours later. Um, and, you know, I, it, it is it's a lot to, to take in for sure. Yeah, it's a, it, like I said, it would have been fine if having done it once. Like I could suspend it for when they went to Russia. I'm like, this is a long way to travel for such a tight timeline. But then I'm like, oh, God, now they're going to Samoa, which is even further. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. Jeez. I, I will say I do like, though, that <laughs> uh, speaking, talking about travel, I like that they actually sh- showed them on the plane and stuff. This is a really random and small details, um, but I think uh, what I, you know, it's so many action movies, right? It is. It's, it's the globe trotting. It's like, okay, we're here in one scene, and then the next scene we're automatically in, you know, this way far away country. But I do like that they showed them when they were going to Russia uh, on the plane, and, you know, they're uncomfortable on the plane, and they're, you know, uh, sleeping and all of that. Like, I, I like that we got to see them in a more traditional setting of like, hey, you know, these big action uh, you know, heroes, they have to take the plane too, right? It's not, they're not just teleporting. So they they're did flying do that commercial though. well. Yeah, exactly. They're in coach. Yeah. 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 I mean, I felt like that was mainly a, a narrative thread just to hand, just to get that special guest appearance from Kevin. Yeah. Hart. To get, to let that guy do it, to let him do a stand up set. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Speaking of uh, the new characters to the franchise, uh, we have one more, even though apparently this person's been in the universe before. The you know this guy has a history at the least with Shaw, but apparently maybe also with Hobbs. Who knows? Um, Brixton Lore, played by Idris Elba, he's the Black Superman. He's the bad guy in this movie, or at least the facade of the bad guy in this movie. Scott, what did you think of Idris Elba's performance? What did you think of this guy as a villain? Does he live up to some classic action movie villains, or is he just another face in the crowd? Yeah, I, somewhere in between, probably. I think. Um, you know, Idris Elba is a great actor. He has a great screen presence. There's a reason people want him to play James Bond. Uh, you know, he was in the MCU, of course. I think, uh, he, you know, his character isn't the most interesting here. Uh, he's just, you know, he's a puppet of this massive corporation, uh, quite literally a puppet, um, you know, as we see at the very end of the movie. Um, and I don't think that he exists much outside of that context, which of course we've seen done many times, like the whole big corporation developing the super virus, like is nothing new whatsoever. And it really, again, it does feel like an excuse just to thread the, uh, action scenes together. But again, there's only, uh, an Idris Elba performance can only be so bad, right? Because he is such a good actor. Um, and so I think, uh, he does what he can. I mean, like, I think he is intimidating as the villain. I, I, di- I did want to see more. I mean, you know, of course, the whole thing about it, I'm the black Superman and all of that. I feel like we just didn't get enough of what exactly it is that made him the black Superman. I mean, obviously, he's been genetically engineered in some way to, you know, be this sort of super soldier. But I just feel like the action sequences didn't really make good enough use of the setup of, oh, I'm the black Superman. Uh, and there was nothing that really distinguished him from a lot of other villains. And I feel like, again, it is just a little bit introducing the whole genetically engineering element, all of that. It it does feel like we're getting really, really far beyond what this franchise is supposed to be. And I understand, you know, we, there's been a clear shift in the franchise 
from what it originally was to you know these big heist movies but i mean you really are sort of turning it into a superhero film at that point whereas i think uh this franchise is you know more in the mission impossible spy vein um and you know is stronger when it focuses on uh you know the the more spy theme that you know heist uh driven plots uh, than it is when you're you know you're getting into this whole new area again that uh, where he's all you know he's a super villain um and so I, I get kind of a mixed bag again like the whole movie he always has a strong presence but i think he's let down here by the material yeah i think that i do think idris elba is one of those in some ways underrated actors for the breadth of his talent and ability to play pretty much any kind of role i mean you know you mentioned he's in the mcu his on-screen presence is totally different in you know in his Heimdall character from the Thor franchise than it is obviously as Brixton here in Fast and Furious, and I just have a great appreciation for him. I think he can. I think he could literally do just about any role that you put him in, and, and it's always a treat to see him on screen because of that. But I don't disagree with you. This character, in some ways, is half baked. I think I might be a little bit more positive on it than you are. I think in terms of it, him being the Black Superman, I mean. Did you not see him drop kicking the rock? I mean, the rock is a rock, but yet he's just you know getting bad on like, the side. We see, we see Vin Diesel doing the same thing. I mean, I understand Vin Diesel's a bigger guy than Idris Elba, but that's when I think of Superman, I don't think of like, oh, I can kick the rock and actually cause some damage. I mean, that's fair enough. I haven't seen those movies, so I can't say, but yeah, that is also part of the uh, contractual arguments of Fast and Furious characters of, of how many times they can get hit in a movie or something crazy like that, but. That's neither here nor there, I guess. Uh, again, the half-baked character, he's the face of, an, of a much you know bigger bad in the form of Etienne and whoever's leading that. I read some like ridiculous fan theories about you know this guy might be like <laughs> like Tyrese Gibson's character. No, it seems like it's going to be John Cena probably, right? I mean, that's kind of what I'm thinking. That's what I'm thinking too if you think that John Cena is going to be the bad guy in Fast and Furious 9. But we'll see. I think he'll be the bad guy in Fast and Furious 9 and then he'll be the he'll join the team in Fast and Furious 10. He'll join the team. And we'll find out that he's a cousin of the Shaws. Oh yeah, are you sure? Are you sure it's not like an uncle? <laughs> he's going to have a British accent. He's from further north in the UK though. Um yeah, I mean who knows? It could be could be John Cena, could be um uh but I mean whoever it is apparently has a history according to the movie has a history with Hobbs as well, though just Hobbs can't seem to remember it. But that, whatever, it doesn't matter. I I don't want to dwell too much on this because ultimately I think this villain is forgettable, but Idris Elba I think does do a good job about trying to make it mem- as memorable as it can be, right? Because they ultimately make this villain forgettable because he's not really the villain in the movie. Yeah, no, that I mean, that's a fair point. And, you know, again, that's how all of the villains in this franchise seem to be set up. Uh, you know, they, they always seem to have greater things in mind for them down the road. There's always that open-endedness of, oh, hey, you know, maybe there's some way here we can turn them into a hero. Yeah. Uh, we'll see what happens with Charlie's in the next movie. It's true. It's true. We will see. Uh, Scott, moving on, we've talked a lot about the plot, the locations, and the action already, but let's spend a little bit of time diving into any loose ends that we might have there. Scott, anything of those three that stood out that we haven't talked about already uh, for either better or for worse? Not real. I mean, I guess, so if we're talking about the action, if we are going to have a standout scene, I did love the scene where they're like jumping down the building um, and, and Idris Elba is like running down the building and uh, the rock is like dropping on top of people and stuff uh, and, you know, jumping from like uh, bungee cord to bungee cord and all this stuff. I thought that was a good scene. It reminded me a lot of the uh, the uh, 
Burj Khalifa scene from Ghost Protocol. Uh, I thought, and I thought that was a place where the creativity did really come in, and the way that the action scenes were staged. But you know, in other places, like you said, I think the first car chase is fine, but then we get another one in Russia uh, in a not particularly interesting location uh, with that you know that whole nuclear facility. And then yeah, there's just a lot of people beating people up. And the Samoa sequence, we do get a little bit of like, oh, we're gonna you know use ancient Samoan fighting tactics, right, uh, against uh, Eater Zelba and his crew because their weapons have been disabled. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, probably not enough of that. And again, it's probably too late. And the final battle especially, I mean, was just pretty dull to me. It was just like, okay, who's going who's gonna to finally punch the hardest? Uh, I was far more interested in seeing how Vanessa Kirby was going to uh, deal with the guy who was supposed to shoot her when her timer hit zero. Um than I was with, you know, the, the fight between the three of these guys. Um, so yeah, as far as the plot, again, it's, it's really tired. It's the whole corporation super virus thing you've seen a billion times and they, they don't really put any new spin on it. So disappointing. Yeah. I think I'm shocked that you say that about the final fight scene, because for a second, I thought they actually had Guy Ritchie direct that scene and with the amount of slow-mo that was involved with the punch. Oh gosh. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I forgot about how much slow-mo there was and it was, it was very unnecessary. It was a shame that the Samoa sequence just came. I know we said this already, but it was such a shame that that came so late in the movie because it probably is one of the standout um, periods of time in the movie because it's not just one scene, it's multiple scenes. And that is when they start to get a little bit more, I mean, I, I hesitate to say original, but doing something just a little bit different than they've been doing the rest of the movie. Uh, yes, it's a little bit weird that they're you know going back to their roots and like coming to terms with their history by literally fighting in the historic Samoa style. But still, that's like different than everything else in the movie. And so I appreciated it for that. And it just like it felt like such a strange thing to have as the coda to the movie. Like the movie should have been more about this because like we get to this in the last 45 minutes of the movie. And so like, of course, we've had it all hyped up that Dwayne Johnson hasn't been back in 25 years and he shows up for the first time in 25 years, literally bringing a war with him. And yet, like after one scene, his entire family has reconciled with him. And I feel like there, you know, if if you make that the focus of the movie, we can have a more believable sort of arc for his family slowly coming to terms with that. But they're kind of just like, oh, yo, it's the Samoan way. We forgive you. And now we're going to come out here and, you know, put all hands on deck. We're going to get all the weapons and we're going to fight this war for you, Um, even though, you, you know, you haven't had anything to do with us for the last 25 years. It was just a little too neat and tidy. All right, Scott, before we enter our wrap-up phase, one more question for us to dissect. I mean, David Leach kind of came onto the scene when he co-directed John, the first John Wick movie with Ch- Chad Stahelski. And obviously, the John Wick franchise, we praised it earlier this year when John Wick 3 came out for its stylized, choreographed action. But since then, Leach has done, you know, he's done this movie now. He did Deadpool 2. He did Atomic Blonde. He's, do you think that this movie contributes to that, you know, body of work for action films that he's been building or will you just simply be hoping that the next time he comes out has some improvements? Yeah. I don't know that he really does. Like he hasn't really established his own thing. Uh, like, you know, Chad Stahelski obviously is really amazing at directing the, the close combat, um, scenes and stuff from his time, uh, as a stunt coordinator. And McQuarrie is great at fusing all of these, uh, elements of spy movies and, and heist movies and everything, uh, into, a satisfying package in those Mission Impossible movies. You know, even the Russo brothers, look at what they're able to do with staging large-scale battle sequences in 
those MCU movies that they directed, these directors all have sort of their signature hallmark things that they're good at. And I just don't know that David Leach has really put his stamp on any of the movie. I mean, I, I liked Deadpool too, uh, but I don't think there's really anything innovative about it. And so I think if he's really going to establish himself, um, I think he's going to have to come up with a more distinctive style um, that will, you know, allow him to coexist alongside people like McQuarrie and Chad Stahelski and the Russo brothers, because otherwise I'm going to be like, you know, you should have just gotten one of these guys to direct. Yeah. And, you know, even within the own franchise, someone like Justin Lin, who, yeah, he's done other things besides Fast and Furious. And obviously he didn't do Fast or, you know, Fast 7 or Fate of the Furious. But, I mean, he kind of became known for when he took on, you know, Tokyo Drift, Fast 4, Fast 5, Fast 6, all those movies, um, and kind of cornered the market on heist, but with a, you know, with a with a car focus to it. And so, you know, Leach kind of has found himself jumping across lots of different action franchises. And he, to me, he hasn't really found his fit. I wasn't that big of a fan of Atomic Blonde. I don't think that you saw it ever. No, I didn't. But I don't think it's one of Charlize Theron's or James McAvoy's better movies it's an interesting period piece and it, go, it takes an interesting direction, but not my favorite. I didn't think Deadpool two was even as good as the first one. Uh, so I'm a little bit worried for him. I, I really would like him, you know, to find, to find his roots, I guess. And, you know, maybe it was because of Stahelski, not him, that John wick was so innovative in its, in its combat style. I don't know, but I'm really hoping that his next film can just be trying something new. I, I know I, I just said, I didn't love atomic blonde, but, I think at this point, I, I want him to do something original again. And I, again, I'm all right, Scott, in a wrap up phase here. What was your favorite scene from Hobbs and Shaw? So I'll mention something that we haven't talked about yet, which is the other big cameo in the movie by Ryan Reynolds. Um, I think that that's actually a really fun cameo. Again, you know, obviously he worked with Le- Le- Leitch, whatever is however you say it, Leech. on uh, D- Deadpool 2. Um, and I think. Uh, you know, he's doing his Ryan Reynolds thing, right? He's doing what we saw earlier this year in Detective Pikachu. He's doing what we saw in Deadpool. Uh, but I like the uh, the relationship that um, is established between him and Dwayne Johnson. Of course, they're set up as being like old buddies somehow, um, which is hard to believe. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's part of the charm of it. Um, but I also like that they, they, you know, they made his character important to the plot. Like he's actually able to, to help them in the plot. It, it wasn't just a throwaway cameo. Um, and, you know, he's able to uh, listen in on the calls and all of that, um, get them the, the flight. Uh, and so I, I think um, that I really enjoyed uh, his brief cameo. And, you know, again, maybe um, this character will uh, will appear in the next movie. Well, who knows? We'll see. I mean, they put him in a post credit scene. That means he has to be in the next They did, one, right? yeah. Yeah, and we get to see him kicking some butt in the post-credit scene, so we'll see. Was he kicking butt? Is that true? I think so, right? I think he was just calling the rock and kind of cowering in the in the bunker. <laughs> I could be wrong. Yeah, I, I could be wrong too. Again, I this movie just did not register with me. <laughs> I mean, I also thought it was egregious that there were three post-credit scenes in this film. Like, what what was the point yeah. of that? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, favorite scene uh, to me, it, it's, you know, one of the it's that final climactic scene when they first, you know, first start that fight on Samoa. Um, you kind of get everyone there there together. It was the part where I finally thought the movie finally got out of, you know, these three characters way and, and could just go free flow. The right balance of action and banter rather than 
too much banter, too little action, or vice versa in some cases. Um, and you got to see, you know, Vanessa Kirby interacting with with both um, Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham. And I think ultimately it, it is one of the the best scenes in the movie. Of course, like most of these scenes, I think it it grows old somewhat quickly uh, by the end of it, and maybe the the finale of the fight between Brixton and Hobbs and Shaw. Maybe it doesn't quite live up to the buildup in that scene, but I do like the buildup. All right, Scott, let's put a score on it. Well, I said it at the beginning. It's thoroughly average. I don't feel overly positive or overly negative. I just feel nothing towards this movie. So I'm going right down the middle with a 5.0. Yeah, I think I'm about right there with you at a 5.2. All right, that should just about do it for our discussion of Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw. Let's take a short break. And when we return, we'll be discussing this past week's news and trailer drops. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, several news items to get through before we turn to the trailers of the week. And first off, we have some Marvel news, a little bit more details about next year's Black Widow movie, and kind of half confirmation, half of actual new news, I think. And and that is that Florence Pugh and Rachel Weisz are confirmed to both be playing other characters with the Black Widow moniker in the upcoming movie. We kind of suspected that already for Florence Pugh's character because we knew she was she was playing Elena Bartolova, uh, who we know in the comics has been a black has been called Black Widow. We didn't know Rachel Weisz's character's name, but whatever her character's real name is going to be, she's also going to have the Black Widow moniker. Scott, does this do anything for you? Does it just get you more excited, or is it still just steady state and ready for it to come out? It's exciting. I mean, it's exciting because it probably means Florence Pugh will be around for, uh, you know, at least you would expect multiple movies. I mean, I think we didn't really know. Um, what this character was going to be when she was first cast. Um, you know, I guess there was always the chance that she could have been, you know, just sort of a one-off villain. Um, and I think that would have been uh, unfortunate because obviously she is a, a big uh, actress of the moment now with uh, two big movies that she's done already this year and, and one more to come. Um, I think they would be making a mistake if they didn't capitalize on her rising stock. And it seems like that's exactly what they're going to be doing. So uh, I'm excited to see the future of the Black Widow franchise um, is in good hands with uh, with Florence Pugh and with Rachel Weisz. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, we've known for a little bit that you know her character was going to be at least playing someone who, in the comics, had been called Black Widow, and I think it was more surprising to hear about Rachel Weisz, who we didn't know who her character was going to be, and then after it was at real, you know, unveiled that Taskmaster was going to be the villain. People thought that Rachel Weisz would be playing Taskmaster, and maybe she still will. Maybe they'll do some melding of multiple characters into hers. Maybe she'll still be the villain. But learning that she's also going to be playing a character who is a quote-unquote Black Widow, uh, I I think that that definitely at least tries to market that she's not the villain in the movie. Um, And it'll be interesting to see what this movie actually ends up doing and if it's true that Florence Pugh is is going to be around for a few movies. Because obviously that's something that I would like very much. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Scott, in other kind of casting news, Adrian Brody and Bobby Cannavale to play are going to be playing Arthur Miller and Joe DiMaggio, respectively, in Netflix's movie called Blonde, which is a biopic of Marilyn Monroe, played by Anna de Armas. Scott, is this exciting news for you? Netflix really seems to be trying to get into the Hollywood period piece dramas, 
uh, that are centered around that kind of late stage Hollywood. They have Mank, and now they also have Blonde. Yeah, no, this is an interesting, uh, interesting pro- project. We haven't seen a whole lot of biopics about Marilyn Monroe, who's obviously a very interesting person, and uh, there's probably a lot of story there to tell. And I think both of these guys are good casting for who they're playing. I mean, Adrian Brody, uh, I think, is a fun bit of casting for artist types uh, in uh, in Midnight in Paris. He was a great Salvador Dali, <laughs> and so I think he can bring some color to uh, this role of Arthur Miller. I, obviously, we haven't really seen him in a movie in a, in a bit. Um, and then Bobby Cannavale, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you want uh, a guy who's about as New York as they come uh, for the role of Joe DiMaggio, the Yankee Clipper. Uh, and so I think uh, that's, you know, a fastball right down the middle uh, for Bobby Cannavale. And I think he'll do a great job in uh, this movie that I'm intrigued to see. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned that Adrian Brody's good casting for an artist type, and he did play Salvatore Dali in... Uh, in Midnight in Paris, but he also played a pianist in The Pianist, so it's very Vladislav Spielman, or however you say. It. Yeah, I don't. I wasn't going to pronounce it, but and he got an Oscar. I'm glad. I'm glad you did because I didn't want to. Um, yeah, so no, very on brand casting in both, and I think this signals good things for uh, Netflix's kind of new genre they're going after. I mean, we talked for uh, on and on about how they are trying to corner the rom com market. Seems like they're trying to corner the biopic um, slash. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood-esque uh, period pieces, uh, especially since they might also get a uh, director's cut of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So there you go. They need to lock up Ch- Damien Chazelle's movie now, right? Because that it sounds like it's going to be a sort of spin on Once Upon a Time as well. Yeah. Yeah, Babylon. I think that... I think Damien Chazelle has a first look agreement with like Universal or somebody. But No, he does. I was just saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just saying. I'm, I'm sure... I, I'm sure Every movie studio would love to get their hands on anything that Damien Chazelle does at this point, if not for the revenue you can bank, but for the Oscar hype you will get. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, you know, we mentioned Anna de Armas, who will be playing Marilyn Monroe in Blonde. Well, we also have some other Anna de Armas news this week, and that is that Anna de Armas and Ben Affleck are going are both in talks to star in Deep Water, which is an erotic thriller that just sounded a hell of a lot like Gone Girl to me. Scott, what do you make of this casting news? Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's an interesting pairing. You know, Ben Affleck, I think, is great for playing the sort of everyman uh, in these types of movies. I think they really capitalized on that in Gone Girl, which is a movie that I'm a huge fan of. Uh, and yeah, in, gen- in general, this is a sort of genre, sub-genre of movies that I think uh, has kind of gone out of style, was really big in the 90s, and we haven't had a lot of them recently. Um, and so, you know, we'll see if they can channel some of uh, the darkness that made... Uh, Gone Girl so special, I think. Do we know who the director is on this yet? Yeah, Adrian Lin is directing it. Oh, right, of course. Yeah, okay, then yes, this movie's in good hands. Adrian Lin, very known for his uh, experience in this particular genre. He made uh, Fatal Attraction, which is one of the first of these types of movies, and Unfaithful as well, which uh, also definitely qualifies, which was uh, in the early 2000s, I believe. So, um, you know, it will depend on the director. I think that one of the things that made Gone Girl so strong was that you had, a, you know, a genius and David Fincher behind the camera. Um, but yeah, this is, you know, this is promising. And Ana de Armas, also someone who I want to see more of after uh, her role in Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, I, I mean, and speaking of Ana de Armas and what she has on the horizon, I mean, she is in so many movies coming out soon. I mean, she technically was going to be in yesterday, but her scenes got cut, which is too bad. But she's going to be in Knives Out coming out later this year. She's, you know, one of the people in the in the library <laughs> who are being interrogated by uh, Daniel Craig at all. Uh, she's also going to be, I believe she's the Bond girl in, in Bond 25. 
and then you know she's now doing Marilyn Monroe in Blonde, and she's doing this and with Deepwater. So uh, a lot on the horizon. I think she's also in that movie that ju- it just recently got delayed, but it's uh, Rosamund Pike and Joel Kinnaman are leading it. I think it's called The Informer, which is like an action crime thriller, but she has a supporting role in that. So she's very busy, and uh, I think that we're gonna see a lot more of her. I mean, we're definitely gonna see a lot of more of her, you know, over the next twelve months, and we'll have a better sense of whether. Blade Runner 2049 was a flash in the pan or signals that she's going to, you know, maybe have a breakout 12 months coming up soon. Yeah. All right, Scott, switching gears a little bit, talking about less of a new actor and more some seasoned veterans here uh, in casting news. Jared Leto is set to play a serial killer opposite Denzel Washington and Rami Malek in a cop thriller called Little Things. Scott, I mean, Rami Malek, you know, he was, of course, uh, is an Oscar winner for his role last year as Freddie Mercury. And we know he's going to be the villain in Bond 25. But in this movie, he's going to be a detective. You have Denzel Washington, who's kind of the veteran detective. That's kind of his, uh, I think I would assume his mentor and partner. Uh, And then Jared Leto is going to be playing the serial killer that I assume that they're chasing. Is this movie exciting at all? We don't really see too many of these like high profile crime thrillers. I feel like all that often anymore. I feel like they used to used to get a lot of them and any, anytime you get one now it never really feels like it's fully baked but this one looks like they're really swinging for the fences yeah i i wonder you know what kind of a role this will be for jared leto i think sometimes he gets a little bit too much into scenery chewing i think you know talking of blade runner 2049 i think his character felt a little bit off with the the tone of that movie and uh, obviously his joker was a little bit all over the place in, in suicide squad uh and so i think casting him as a uh as a uh, serial killer in this movie, um, you know, it's an interesting choice. We'll have to see um, what he brings to the role. But, you know, I think it is uh, always uh, great to see Denzel Washington's name on a uh, bill. He's as far as leading men go, you can't do uh, much better than that. And he does have some experience with uh, crime thrillers, you know, with movies like Fallen and uh, The Bone Collector and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, of course, I'm excited for this. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the big surprise news this time next year will be that this is actually a DCEU tie-in and the serial killer is just the Joker. Oh, goodness. <laughs> I'm, kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Yeah, no, I, I, I think I echo pretty much all of your sentiments there. I don't really have anything new. I'm excited to see Romy Malek in a different role because as much as I thought he shouldn't have been the Oscar winner last year, I do think that he's a good actor. So we'll see. All right, two more pieces of news before we do switch over to trailers. The first being that Chris Pine, you know, we talked about biopics, big theme of today's news section. Uh, Chris Pine is lined up to play Walter Cronkite in uh, the JFK assassination film Newsflash. Scott, I I assume this is taking the news perspective of this and not the actual assassination piece, but it it fits the theme of these movies we're talking about over the last two weeks. It seems like all of a sudden Hollywood uh, has a hankering just to talk uh, talk about this era. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm a fan of a good JFK assassination film. Um, it's a piece of history that I, uh, you know, have read a little bit about in the past. So um, definitely interested to see, especially if it is, like you said, the more news perspective on this. I, I like movies about the journalism industry as well. Um, Walter Cronkite, of course, very well-known name in news media. You know, I don't know a ton about him. Um, so it's, you know, it's hard for me to say whether or not Chris Pine uh, how he's going to do in this role, but he's a likable actor. And, uh, you know, I, I've liked him in, uh, in some franchise movies and, and stuff like that. Um, so uh, we'll be interested to see this one when it comes out. Yeah, interesting that this movie originally had Seth Rogen, 
uh, eyed for the Cronkite role, which would have been, I mean, that would just be wild. Um, but then David Gordon Green was going to direct, and Mark Ruffalo was going to play uh, kind of his boss. I forget. Uh, Hewitt, I think is his name. Don Hewitt, uh, Cronkite's uh, producer. Um, I don't know if there is anyone who's actually currently tagged to the role, but I know that Mark Ruffalo has is no longer in negotiations for that based on the deadline article that I was reading. But th- Well, that's it. A- that's a shame because Ruffalo then could have had like the golden trilogy of journalism movies with Zodiac spotlight and then that. Um, so that's kind of a shame, but uh, he's, he'll always have those. Yeah. Two. I mean, maybe it'll come back, right? There's no confirmed casting yet. And I'm not even sure this movie has a director yet, but we know that Chris Pine's going to be playing uh, what I assume will be the lead role. So there you go. Yeah. All right. It's got last bit of news and this really isn't much of a discussion, but we learned this past week that Dune is getting pushed back, but only by a month. Uh, by Warner Brothers. So before it was getting a Thanksgiving twenty, it, Thanksgiving twenty twenty, so Thanksgiving of next year release. But now it's been pushed back a month, and it's going to be coming out the week before Christmas. Scott, I don't really view this as alarming at all. It probably just looked at the landscape of movies and decided they didn't really want to compete with the Eternals, and they aren't having a Star Wars movie come out next year because it's the West Side Story uh, from a Disney perspective. Uh, so maybe Christmas time is is the right time for this movie to come out. Scott, does this make you? Uh, any more worried than I am, or do you think that this is, you know, in line with my sentiment here? Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, I, I, for the same reasons, I think, yeah, there's, there's no reason to panic about this. It is just one month. It was probably a strategic, uh, move from, uh, you know, again, what was coming out, uh, with the Eternals, I guess, uh, in November, 2020, of course, they, they w- wouldn't have known that when they first scheduled the release date for the movie. Um, so I, you know, I think we do have some question about how they're going to pull this huge project together by this time next year. Uh, but you know, until I hear more, I'm not concerned really at this point. Yeah. I mean, we all know, I, I mean, we, we heard all the casting news back a few months ago when, you know, actually during filming, cause they actually just wrapped filming a few weeks ago, uh, which is what I wanted the part of the reading. So they have plenty of time to pull this together. I have no idea how much footage that uh you know Dylan Villeneuve and you know the entire production side of things will have to to play with in post-production maybe there'll be a four-hour Netflix cut kind of like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a few months after this release who knows but I'm sure they're gonna pull something together and they have time to do it and they also uh important to note they have time to do reshoots too if they you know create a cut of this film that they decide is still missing um little pieces here and there they they do have plenty of time to get that out. And, you know, with the advent of something like the Joker going on the festival circuit this year, you wonder if maybe that's something that they'll shoot for next year. That's total hypothesizing and um, total guesswork. But I wonder if the Joker will set a new precedent for some of these more thematic, thematically focused movies from these high profile directors. Uh, Although Todd Phillips may be high profile for a different reason than his dramas. Um, Maybe, maybe they'll take a crack at the festival circuit, but that's a, Story for another time, especially since I think they're both Warner Brothers. So maybe Warner Brothers wants to take these movies to the circuit. I don't know. All right, Scott, switching over to trailers this week. We had a few of them and a couple big ones, but none bigger than Netflix's first trailer for The Irishman. Scott, long hyped and and still hyped, I would say, even after this trailer comes out. But we got a first glimpse of what these characters are going to look like and what this movie is going to be about. And when I say what these characters are going to look like, I mean de-aged Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci. Did it live up to the hype, at least for a trailer perspective? Yeah, I mean, of course, this is just feels like a, a classic Scorsese mob movie. Um, I don't think, do we know beforehand that Al Pacino was going to be playing Jimmy Hoffa? I I don't know. I mean, we definitely knew that Al Pacino was going to be in the movie, I, I but I don't yeah. know if we knew his character. 
well, I didn't know it prior to watching this trailer. So uh, that was an interesting reveal. You know, we're going to have some sort of a true uh, story going on here. Uh, but yeah, I mean, with these three guys, it just feels like uh, Scorsese is in his element. Uh, and, you know, when you have a guy uh, in Scorsese who has created some of the great mob movies of all time and uh, reunited with, you know, the, the three guys who... Uh, have really defined the mob movie with Pacino, uh, De Niro, and Pesci. Um, you know, it's hard to say anything but positives about this uh, trailer at this point. Yeah, I mean, long-time listeners of the podcast will know that Scor- one of Scorsese's mob movies, The Departed, is my currently my favorite film of all time. And so, I obviously, this one doesn't have DiCaprio in it, who is my favorite actor of all time, but you're not going to find any better trio of Scorsese mob actors than these three. And... I really want to absolutely love this film. And so I don't think it's going to let me down and I hope it doesn't let me down because I definitely see this, you know, being in the top tier of films this year, if it all comes together. Yeah. No reason it shouldn't be. Yeah. I mean, this first trailer I think was a great indication. I love this trailer just to, I know I, I didn't really give my opinion. I mean, I absolutely love this trailer. The tone is amazing. Um, and it just teases what that world is going to be like. Um, and it's dark, it's dark and it's right up Scorsese's alley. Indeed. Okay, Scott, another movie that uh, is, is probably, a, a, I shouldn't say probably, is definitely dark, but maybe not from uh, a director who typically does these kind of movies, Scott. That's 1917. It's going to Sam Mendes project set in the year 1917, uh, 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 probably set over the span of a, a few days uh, in World War One, where you have, the, you know, the this lead role, who I actually don't know who was playing. I didn't recognize the person, but... Uh, is basically tasked with sending and delivering this message to people on the front lines where if they don't make it in time, everyone's going to die. Scott, does this movie look like it's all of a sudden in the Oscars conversation for when it does come out later this year? I mean, this movie was barely on my radar before this trailer. Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. This is, you know, this is our big British, another big British war movie uh, for us in the vein of Dunkirk or even Darkest Hour. Um, you could look at sort of in the same vein. Um and, you know, they have the cast to boot here with Colin Firth and Benedict Cumberbatch, who we both got to look at in the trailer. Um, and it looks, you know, it looks super immersive. We don't we haven't had a, a ton of movies about World War One. Um, and so I think uh, maybe this could shed some new light on that period of history. Uh, and, you know, Sam Mendes, very accomplished director. Uh, you didn't love what he did with Spectre, the last James Bond movie. Um, but I'm a fan of some of his other work. Uh, and yeah, this this looks like oscar bait but it also looks like uh it could be a really good movie i mean this movie is definitely oscar bait but it feels like oscar bait in all the right ways i mean you mentioned it right there it's a british war film which often you know grabs the attention of oscar voters but it's doing something different it's not you know retreading ground that we've tread before it's going after world war one and it's going to present obviously the fact that it's going after world war one it presents a very different atmosphere you know, when you look at World War II movies, it's a lot of time it's all it's all about like all war movies are about death, about dealing with that and, you know, overcoming the enemy. But the hook of this movie, of course, is the fact that this movie is going to be set in the trenches of World War One, because that was the, you know, hallmark of World War One was that trench warfare. And so that just creates an atmosphere that I think is different than what we get in a lot of war movies. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that I didn't recognize the cast, but George McKay and Dean Charles Chapman are the two lead roles. And you know, you mentioned that Colin Firth and Benedict Cumberbatch feature in the trailer. Someone who I don't remember seeing in the trailer, but we know is going to be in the movie. That's Richard Madden. So he at least is going to have a supporting role here to um, 
to sink his teeth into after maybe a little bit of a disappointment in Rocket Man. But I'm very excited about this movie. You mentioned that Spectre uh, was a little bit of a letdown for Sam Mendes. But also, I think it's important to note that he he crushed it with Skyfall. And it was really hard. It was always going to be hard to follow up Skyfall from, from that perspective. And um, now he's obviously moved on from uh, the Bond franchise. And he's doing this. And I'm very interested in it. I think, like I mentioned, it wasn't on my radar really before. I mean, I knew it was coming out. I knew it was a war movie. But this trailer, all of a sudden, now it's really on my radar. Yeah, for sure. Okay, Scott, final trailer. <laughs> That's a black and white film starring Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe, produced by everyone's favorite indie uh, indie house. Uh, that is A24. Scott, this trailer is weird and wacky, probably exactly like what this movie is going to be. But tell me your thoughts on it. Yeah, it's hard to tell like what even what genre this is going to be, like what even the movie is really about. But it is the latest, of course, from Robert Acid Eggers. Acid trip drama. Yeah, it is the, the latest from Robert Eggers, who, of course, directed The Witch, um, which is a movie that I liked a lot when it came out. I need to rewatch it, actually, because uh, I haven't seen it in a bit. Um, but I've heard good things about this movie. It has played at some festivals. Um, Willem Dafoe talking in, like, old English sea speak, like, like a cranky old sea captain. I mean, you couldn't pick a more perfect person to play that role. Uh, and obviously getting another look at Pattinson prior to Batman is going to be something interesting. And yeah, this feels like it's something that people are either going to love or hate, you know, maybe in the vein of, uh, some other movies that a 24 has put out this year, like Midsommar. Um, but we will see, uh, what the ultimate product is because I think we're getting this one pretty soon. Actually, Yeah. This movie is going to be a black and white psychological horror film and it, it, you can definitely get the psychological elements from the trailer, that's for sure. I, wh- where the horror falls in and what kind of horror it's going to be, we're going to have to wait and see. You talked about this premiering uh, on the festival circuit. I, it made its world premiere at Cannes uh, a few months back, you know, right before the summer started in, in May. And you talk about being seeing good things about it from a critical perspective. And, of course, this is, this is critics. I mean, this movie is getting rave reviews, 98 on Rotten Tomatoes, 91 on Metacritic right now. So the critics are really liking it. That being said, I can already hear, I can already like see Jeff Snyder's tweet about how boring this movie is, which is why no one's going to go see it. Uh, because, I, I mean, we'll see what the final product looks like, uh, but it looks like you're going to have to really be invested in uh, what this movie, in the art house element of this movie, it being black and white, it, it doing, being weird and wacky, which is what A24 excels in. Uh, I'll definitely see it. <laughs> I'm curious what the experience is going to be like seeing this because it's about two lighthouse keepers and the fact that they're like lonely attending this lighthouse. So what are you going to do? Yeah. Right up a 24's alley, I think. All right, Scott, that will do it for episode 54 of some like it's Scott. where can people find you on Twitter at Scarvey Dent. And I can be found at S Shelton two zero one three over on Twitter, where you can also find our podcast at, at media plug pods. And you can also check our podcast out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods, or we'd love it. If you picked a reward tier, uh, donated to the podcast and help, continue to make this a a viable option and continue to deliver more content to all of our listeners. Uh, If you don't choose to support us on Patreon, though, that's okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts and on Podbean, where we'd appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us as well as subscribed and shared so that we can continue to reach a broader audience. All right, I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies, and we really appreciate all of your support over the last five months as Scott and I have tried a different podcasting format with a new episode, sometimes even multiple episodes every single week. But for the next two weeks, we're actually going to be taking our version of a summer break. We have lots of great content on the horizon, though, because when we return, 
from the break. We're hopefully going to be reviewing Richard Linklater's latest Where'd You Go, Bernadette? And then we'll have our Best of the Decade live stream shortly thereafter. So enjoy the break. Go catch up on some of the movies you've missed over the summer while you've been outside enjoying the nice weather and get ready for more content when Some Like It Scott returns. Until then, however, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. Thank you.